When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Happy Hump Day, and welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Awesome, awesome show today. Uh, Talked with Uncle Jimmy this morning. He's doing well. He's feeling better. Uh, Think he'll be out of the hospital here in the next two to three days and back on the road to recovery. Uh, So we have that good news to start the show with. I have even better news. Leonidas Johnson has come down from the great state of Ohio uh, to sit here in studio with us here in Nashville. Leonidas, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you here. Leonidas lives in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and de- what is, is it? Informed Descent? Is- yeah, Informed Descent. Descent is the name of his podcast. Uh, he's a friend of the show. Uh, you guys saw him he- uh, here last week when we thought, hey, let's bring him down to Nashville, sit him in Uncle Jimmy's seat. Uh, don't think he's going to crack jokes like Uncle Jimmy, but uh, Leonidas is one of the smartest guys uh, I know over social media. You guys should follow his uh, Twitter feed. It's just Leonidas Johnson. At Leonidas Johnson, yep. Yeah, and that's L-E-O-N-Y-D-U-S. Who came up with the Y? Uh, that's a family name. It's been in family for generations. Like yeah, my uncles. So they stuck you with yeah. it, and I'm stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So you're not the first Leonidas in your family. That's right. Uh, all right. So Leonidas Johnson's here. He's going to help me uh, with this fire I'm about to start. But we also have uh, it's Wednesday. You guys know that that means it's Tennessee Harmony. It's Harmony Wednesday. Uh, Pastor Bobby Harrington came up with another excuse not to be here. But who needs him when we have Pastor Anthony Walker? Uh, We're going to talk with Anthony about Urban Meyer and Urban Meyer uh, not living up to all of his Christian values as we saw in the past week. And so we'll get into that. We'll get a biblical perspective from Pastor Anthony Walker. Uh, But also uh, a little bit later in the show or before Pastor Walker, we're going to welcome in Tim Barton the president of Wall Builders. Uh, It's a group that preserves American historical documents and educates the public and government officials about our history. Uh, Tim Barton, a great friend of our dear friend, uh, Glenn Beck, and you guys have probably seen me talk previously about all the historical documents and information that basically Glenn has a museum next to the studios in Dallas. And I'm sure Tim, uh, Tim Barton is involved in that. Glenn, one of the great historians. I'm fascinated by history. I can't wait to hear Tim Barton's take on some, all the rewriting of history we're going through right now as the left tries to repackage and represent America's history. 
Uh, so we'll get into that with Tim Barton. But uh, you know what? <clears throat> Where we're going to start, and Leonidas, I hope you have some fire retardant clothes on because I'm about to start a fire. I'm going to restart the fire that I started yesterday uh, about Bubba Wallace because people had the nerve to try to come at me out on these Twitter streets. And that is one of the biggest mistakes you could make. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, Jenna Fryer, the Associated Press's motorsports writer. She desperately wants Bubba Wallace to be the second coming of Wendell Scott, the first black driver to win a NASCAR race. So do many of the descendants of Scott, the primary benefactors of the Wendell Scott Foundation a 501c3 nonprofit established to commemorate Scott's legacy and employ Scott's descendants. Uh, yesterday, in reaction to my column exploring corporate media's obsession with pretending Wallace faces 1950s style anti-black bigotry, Fryer and Warwick Scott Sr., a grandson of the deceased driver, criticized my column over social media. In a since-deleted tweet, Fryer called my opinion piece a literal hot take. She then claimed I was unqualified to write it because I've never personally interviewed Bubba Wallace and because she's seen Bubba Wallace need security, seen convoys of Confederate flags, heard the deafening boos. Warg Scott, the founder of the Wendell Scott Foundation, called me a clown in one tweet and challenged me to talk face to face in another one, writing, quote, you're the first black man that I have ever known to disrespect and disregard my grandfather's legacy in such a manner. Instead of me ripping you to pieces on Twitter, how about a face to face opportunity to discuss? Well, I've extended Warwick Scott an invitation to discuss the matter right here on Fearless with Jason Whitlock. He asked me to DM him, I DM'd him. He hasn't responded. He's not here as of yet. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow, maybe it'll happen the next day. I don't know, but I would like for Warwick, Jenna, and everyone to listen to me right here, restating and clarifying my point of view on Bubba, Wendell, and corporate media's obsession with transporting blacks to the future, AKA pretending that 2021 America is really no different from 1961 America. This false narrative is done for profit and harms modern race relations. The false narrative relies on an, an intentional, blatant distortion of fact, truth, and reality. Jenna Fryer, Bubba Wallace and Warwick Scott all financially benefit from the promotion of the false narrative that Wallace is racing in an environment similar to the one Wendell Scott competed in 60 years ago. Let me take a moment here and establish some context. The Associated Press is America's primary news source and the world's foundational source for news about the United States. The AP presents America to the rest of the planet. It is the most powerful news source in America. It's 100 times more influential than Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. The AP dwarfs the New York Times impact and influence. 
all of those news sources rely on the AP's content. Although unknown, Jenna Fryer determines how the world views Bubba Wallace, NASCAR, and America's race fans. Her work is the foundation for all other news sources. ESPN ran her story on Wallace at the top of its website. Fryer and the AP decided to wrap Wallace's rain-shortened victory in the Yellowwood 500 in a racial narrative. They decided to present it as a historic moment. These narratives are chosen by the media, by the TV networks, by the leagues in need of historic moments to boost ratings. As I wrote yesterday, Wendell Scott got his chance to race on the Dixie circuit in 1951 because a smart promoter realized the best way to attract fans to the Speedway in Danville, Virginia was to have a black driver compete against white men. Wendell's popularity on the Dixie circuit inspired NASCAR to let him race. America has changed for the better. The country is far less racist than it was in the 1950s and 60s. The American media has not changed for the better. The media is far more sinister, subversive, and clandestine with its racism than it was 60 years ago. Corporate media is the wolf in a black female sheep's clothing. Let's examine how the AP and Jenna Fryer handled Wendell Scott's narrative and Bubba Wallace's. Fryer and her editors intentionally chose to present Scott's 1963 victory in Jacksonville and Wallace's victory on Monday in the most racially polarizing and divisive way. Fryer's Tuesday story included this paragraph. Wallace is the first black driver to win at the top level of the elite stock car race series since Wendell Scott in 1963, a race in which he wasn't declared the victor until long after Buck Baker had already been awarded the trophy. NASCAR at last presented Scott's family with his trophy from that race two months ago. That's what Jenna Fryer wrote. The paragraph clearly insinuates that NASCAR waited more than 50 years to recognize Scott as the winner of the race. It's an intentional distortion. It's what we like to call a white liberal lie used to trigger people emotionally. Here's the truth about what happened to Wendell Scott in 1963. It was written in the Jacksonville newspaper in 2010. I quote, the guy won the race in Jacksonville. The newspaper in Jacksonville wrote about it in 2010. Here are the facts according to the people at ground zero of Wendell Scott's victory. It took two hours, long after the fans left the Jacksonville track, before NASCAR upheld a protest by Wendell Scott. Racing rival Buck Baker originally was declared the winner. He took the checkered flag. NASCAR then poured through its handwritten scorecards and agreed that Scott actually drove two extra laps. Official records now show him two laps ahead of the field. Scott eventually was declared the winner and received the first place winner's check. He also received a trophy 
not the original, four weeks later before a race in Savannah, Georgia. Those are the facts published in the Jacksonville newspaper for everybody to see. If she's the alleged motorsports expert, I'm unqualified to talk about this, but I can hunt down the facts better than Jenna Fryer. This is intentional distortion. This is intentionally done to trigger people emotionally along racial lines. This is done to divide us. The AP is America's news source to the world. Jenna Fryer is sloppy. Her editors are sloppy. They're doing this intentionally. They're doing it at the behest of China. They're compromised. This is fake news. You should go read the entire Jacksonville article. Scott and Buck Baker were actually friends. Baker sold Scott the first car Scott ever raced. At the time of Scott's victory, it was commonplace in the 1960s for there to be scoring discrepancies. It happened all the time. Scott's victory wasn't a big deal because only a couple of the races even mattered at that time. NASCAR wasn't a big deal then. This is all detailed 10 years ago, 11 years ago, in the Jacksonville newspaper. Go read it for yourself. It's not hard to find. Send it, send the damn article to Jenna Fryer and the editors at the AP. You don't need to be Inspector Clouseau to find this stuff out. You just gotta not wanna be race baiting 24-7, 365 for relevancy. Jenna Fryer's Tuesday story also stated that NASCAR didn't give Scott's family a trophy until two months ago. That ain't true either. There's a story from 2010 in the Jacksonville newspaper about the Jacksonville Stock Car Racing Hall of Fame and NASCAR presenting Scott's descendants with a trophy. It was a 45-minute ceremony. So let's go to the final scorecard here. Let, let, let's check the judge's scorecard for the final tally. For what Wendell Scott, for a single victory in 1963, Scott received the winner's paycheck, a trophy in Savannah, Georgia, four weeks later, when he died. His family got a trophy and a ceremony in Jacksonville. And just two months ago, his family got a third trophy and ceremony from NASCAR. Wendell Scott is in several Hall of Fames, and his grandson is employed by a foundation dedicated to promoting Scott's legacy. Wendell Scott, I mean, my God, how much better treatment could you get? <laughs> what he's got I me, mean, Lord have, he won one race. Just think about this. This would be the same, and I, it sounds like I'm denigrating, but I'm, I'm not. I'm just trying to put this whole thing in perspective. He won one race. This would be the equivalent of the first black boxer at any weight class or heavyweight class, whatever, the first one to beat a white fighter. 
Oh my God. He won a he won a pro fight. He didn't win the heavyweight title. He just won a fight. Wendell Scott isn't Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight boxing champion. Wendell Scott isn't Jackie Robinson, the first black Major League Baseball player, a six-time All-Star, winner of the National League MVP award in 1949, a World Series champion in 1955. Wendell Scott isn't Althea Gibson, the first black to win the Wimbledon tennis tournament. Wendell Scott isn't George Coleman Poe, the first black American to win an Olympic medal. I'm not trying to denigrate Wendell. From everything I've read and learned about him, he was a man without ego, an extremely hard worker, someone his family and peers respected. He got his start in racing as a promotional tour for the Dixie Circuit and later NASCAR. Bubba Wallace is the new promotional tour. Tool, like Scott, Bubba isn't Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan or Muhammad Ali. He's not an all-time great. He's not better than his competitors. In order to make him appear better, Jenna Fryer and the Associated Press have created the appearance that he's overcoming the KKK, the Proud Boys, Trump supporters, insurrectionists, the descendants of Jefferson Davis, Jason Whitlock, and everybody damn else. Fryer wrote this morning, Wednesday morning, about the garage door rope knot that Wallace never saw. She insists on calling it a noose, and yes, it looks like a noose. It's a freaking knot. She complained that people on Twitter sent Wallace mean tweets. She lamented the fact that some race fans boo Wallace. Booing, tweets, ropes on a garage door are the equivalent of cross burnings, lynchings, and fire hoses. It's all fake news. It's stirring racial animus for profit. Everybody wins. Jenna Fryer, Warwick Scott, Bubba Wallace, NASCAR, the Associated Press, and all of America's adversaries, all the people in China, the, the, the CCP, all the people that want to see this country burn to the ground. They all win. They get to continue to stir this racial animus for no reason with this fake race news, and they all win. Jenna Fryer becomes more popular. She gets to pretend like she's covering 1950s America. She's out on the front line, taking on everybody that hates Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace's grandson, <laughs> he's sitting there right now, looking at the donations to the Wendell Scott Foundation, roll in. Bubba Wallace makes Wendell Scott relevant. And so he's all into that. NASCAR wins. They've been doing this forever. This is what capitalists do. Whatever it takes to draw a crowd, sell tickets, draw attention, whatever, they will do. And so Wendell Scott, we can't draw fans at the Danville Speedway in the 1950s. Let's find a black dude to come in here and race against these white dudes. and. 
I got no problem Wendell Scott or the promoter in, in Danville doing that. But that's all, this is just business. This is, no one here, Martin Luther King and those guys, they were the courageous people out fighting for racial equality. Wendell Scott was a bootleg whiskey driver who got an opportunity to race cars for some money. He loved it. Eventually, his peers loved him and respected him. I read a bunch of stories uh, from, from guys from back then. Or, or, but uh, Buck Baker's son, Buddy Baker, went on to become a NASCAR driver. I'm t- Buck Baker and, and, and Wendell Scott were friends. We're reshaping all this history. And, oh my God, it was Mississippi burning everywhere that uh, Wendell Scott went. And, and no one, 60 years later, no one wants to give him credit. They gave the man a paycheck, three different trophies, two different ceremonies, and it still ain't enough for Warwick Scott and these people that are get, who are living off of their dead grandfather. That's their claim to fame. You know what I did? I was the grandson of Wendell Scott. That's your calling card. Cut it out. This, <laughs> you wanna know why I'm hated in the media? Cause I've been calling bullshit on the media for my entire career. Yeah. That's my fire. Uh, they got me to cuss there at the end. I'm sorry. I, I blame myself. Uh, Leonidas, uh, you're here for your first fire. Uh, do you have anything? That, can you throw some more gas on this fire, please? My goodness, man. Well, at first, I want to say your Jenna Fryer impression was yeah. spot on. Thank man. you. I loved it. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate but look, I, I quote Booker T. Washington all the time because it's so appropriate. You know, he says there's a certain class of people who want to keep the struggles and troubles of black people in front of the public, partly because it garners them sympathy and partly because it pays. They don't want the patient to get better. They cannot allow that to happen because they don't want to lose their jobs. The incentives are there. So there's there's multiple layers to this, Jason. I mean, first we're dealing with uh, the bigotry of low expectations. It's not even the soft bigotry of low expectations anymore. It's just the bigotry. It's straight up racism. It's like, oh, Bubba Wallace won a race. Yeah, and I mean, you're not going to do that with a white with a white driver. We're not going to make all this, you know, make this big deal if it's a white driver. The same thing we see it in schools. We see it in corporate America. There's, there's a sense that uh, black people need special accommodations, or if black people succeed, it's against all odds. And oh yeah, we need to. It's ridiculous. It's nonsense. And then the other level of this, I want to say, is that uh, there is a sort of romanticizing that happens with uh, with black suffering and victimization. And that happens a lot in, among black people that, where we tie our identity to victimhood. And so if you, you can't separate the two. And so what happens is there is an incentive. We talk about incentives to uh, you know, push a certain narrative because it gets ratings or whatever, but there's also an incentive to uh, be seen as a victim, to have that sort of victimhood narrative pushed and in order to maintain that identity of authentic blackness. You know, and so that is a big issue, and that's something that we need to need to deal with as a society and as a culture, just all around. I, I, 
I love all of your points, uh, but the victimhood where you got to at the end is probably my favorite because, and, and you said it, I, I think I'm gonna just try to restate it a bit, but you, the highest level of blackness is being in a casket. Mm. That th- there's no other. George and, Floyd. And, and, and particularly, let me clarify that. The highest level of blackness is being in a casket because of something a white person did. Yep. Yep. That's the high, you've ascended to the highest height. Sainthood. Yes. You're a martyr for the racism cause. But all your sins are also forgiven. Right. It's like George Floyd did what he did, a criminal, drug user, drug abuser, uh, all, but all of that because of the last nine minutes of his life and because a white man put his knee on his neck and shoulder area for that last nine minutes, nothing that happened the previous 40 some odd years before, all of that is irrelevant and those nine minutes make George Floyd one of the great human beings in American history. And for those nine minutes, George Floyd laid on the ground at the knee of a white man. Mm. And somehow that makes you highly important and someone to be celebrated. It goes, it, it, it tells you, because look, if it had been my knee, or if he had been wrestling with a gangster disciple and they, act, they helped him kill himself on fentanyl because their knee kept him on the ground, no one would care. Right. Well, we would step over that body in an instant, make fun of him, talk crap on him the whole nine yards. But because he was so blessed <laughs> to die at the knee of a white man, George Floyd has ascended into the heavens. He's one of the greatest Americans of all time. We're building statues. He's going to be taught in U.S. history for decades. He's a victim of, of alleged white supremacy. Yep. And that makes him the high. That's offensive to me. I, I'm just how he can leapfrog people that actually accomplish things. Right. That, and so this whole white people, Asian people, Mexican people, they don't have this burden of, oh, if you could just be a victim. If somehow you could figure out a way to die at the hands of a white person, you too could be a great American like George Floyd. I, 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 the whole messaging just, it baffles me, it pisses me off, it frustrates me. Why we accept this? Yeah. And can you help me? It's 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 like this Gnosticism, like a mystic kind of uh, approach to race and racism. So that you know, last year, ten thousand black people were killed, uh, homicide victims, ninety uh, percent killed by other black people. Do we talk about it? Do we talk about that? Do we talk about the black on black crime? Do we talk about those issues? The, the, like you said, the gangsters, the, the thugs that are shooting kids and shooting people in their communities? No, we don't talk about it because that doesn't have the same mystical effect. We talk about how George Floyd was a victim of this white supremacy system. So it was bigger than George Floyd. It was bigger than Derek Chauvin. It was, it was emblematic of some 
uh, larger system in that America itself has these deep rooted issues, these deep seated, seated issues of racism and white supremacy. It comes from that critical race theory aspect where you're, th- where you're saying racism is endemic in our society, right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere you look. You can't see it. It's just there. George Floyd served as a symbol of that. So that and he's little piece of evidence to show that, see, we told you racism is everywhere. And now we will worship on the altar of social justice as we defeat the white supremacists. And so the thing that one event can be emblematic or a symbol of all these other maladies and, and problems and, and can be, oh my God, what Derek Chauvin did says something about every other white person in America and says something about America. What I would like to know is, as it relates to this Wendell Scott, Bubba Wallace narrative, in like doing the homework on Wendell Scott, in the 1960s, NASCAR, NASCAR, that's allegedly the most racist sports league in the history of America. In 1963, a black driver filed a complaint and say, hey man, y- y'all, y'all scored this wrong and I won this race. And so this racist organization in 1963, within two hours, corrected their mistake and said, you know what, uh, Wendell, you're right. You did win that race. And they gave him the money, because mm-hmm. I guarantee you, if Wendell Scott were alive to speak today and they said, well, you can get this funky trophy or you can get this paycheck, which one do you think Wendell Scott value? Right. Give me that money. Uh, and, and then four weeks later, they gave him a, a replica trophy. And again, we're, we're acting like it's 2021 and it's really 1963. The trophy, I'm sure, wasn't about nothing. In the first, it's not like these things that they hand out now. And so it wasn't a big deal then. And again, if you go read the Jacksonville stories, they even, they even say like, this wasn't even really a controversy until years later. That what happened to Wendell Scott at the time wasn't a controversy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until several years later that it became this big deal. That the man won some race that I'm sure three or 4,000 people were at the race. But it, 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 again, NASCAR wasn't, and auto racing wasn't what it is today. It's not like there were 100,000 fans sitting in that speedway or even 20,000 fans sitting in that speedway who got denied seeing him get the trophy and get to to kiss the queen or whatever. Whatever. None of that was in place then. But, But so in 1963, when they could have gotten away with it, NASCAR corrected its error. And then four weeks later, gave the man a trophy. Why isn't that emblematic? A symbol of how America handles the, its wrongs. Yeah. And, and I'm not even sure if there was a wrong here because it, you go back and read the Jacksonville newspaper from 10 years ago, and 10 years ago there was no George Floyd. 10 years ago there was no Black Lives Matter. So you could actually somewhat write the truth about race back then. Now you can't. Right. And so 10 years ago, when they're actually writing this, before there were any of these agendas involved, it was actually a story about 
them handling a mistake the proper way and not screwing over this black man. But in order to hype the Wendell Scott Foundation, started by the grandson, and he can keep them checks flowing and the, the, the donations coming in and his relevance coming in, now we have to Oh, man, what happened to Wendell Scott? It took 60 years for NASCAR to do something about it. And look, even today, there was a noose, a rope inside uh, uh, Bubba Wallace's garage. And, and oh, look how terrible this is. It's, it's all a hoax. I'm talking about for na what NASCAR's in on it, too, in terms of, like, they want the racial narrative. Yeah. They want Bubba Wallace to be Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods made the PGA Tour a boatload of money. And they would love to have that in NASCAR. The problem is Bubba Wallace ain't Tiger Woods. He's not that good. He's fine, but he's not that good. Yeah. That, that's... Yeah, and you're right. There's a lot of power and money in, in pushing these narratives. I've noticed lately, especially, that people who are alive today are more offended by things that happened in the past than the people who lived back then were, that went through the things. You know, so like people who went through the civil rights movement, obviously there were things that happened back then that were awful, right? Like, like the NASCAR thing, we know, I mean, maybe that was just an honest mistake, who knows? But there are del deliberate, obvious things that happened during the civil rights movement that were awful and deliberately racist. And those people went through that, but the people that are alive today, they're more offended now. Like, they, like it hurts them more. They, they feel more traumatized than the people that actually experienced it. And this is the kind of thing that happens when you see the world through the lens of nothing but race, okay? It's, it's the whole idea of when you, all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, right? So there's something in psychology called the hostile attribution bias. And what that means is whenever somebody does something or says something, uh, you automatically attribute hostile intentions to that behavior. So somebody gives you the side eye or somebody uh, locks their door when, you're, when you walk by, you're immediately going to think, oh, they did that because I'm black. Oh, oh she clutched her purse when I got in the elevators because I'm black. Oh, uh, he coughed, whatever. I mean, whatever it might be. Like, you, it, this is how a lot of these people view the world. Like everything is through the lens of the race. But again, there's still those underlying incentives of money and power and, and control that still exist. But I'm, I'm talking more about the people who identify with this stuff and, and it's deep seated and they see everything that way. So they look back at a event like that and say, well, obviously that would happen because he was black. You know, clearly they just tried to, they, they only changed it because they got caught, you know? So everything, nothing negative, look at Jason, nothing negative can happen to black people without it. Well, I, 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 we'll, we'll end this on this point because you've made an excellent point, but I'm gonna tell you what's at the root of it as it relates to white people is there's such a reverence among leftist thinking, black and white people. Yep. They think white people are infallible. White people are the most high. And so they don't think white people are capable of incompetence. Mm. They don't think white people can make mistakes. And so I've said this about Derek Chauvin, and I stand on this. There's no proof he was motivated by racism. At all. 
it was likely incompetence. Yep. And again, when you don't have white people on a pedestal, it's a lot easier to see their incompetence. But when you have them on a pedestal, you can't see that they're just as incompetent as you are. And so they make mistakes the same as you make mistakes, the same as I make mistakes. And so I don't have to look at all of their mistakes as it relates to me as, oh, that must be motivated by race. It might be motivated by stupidity, might be motivated by liquor, it might be motivated by, hey, they're having a bad day. Again, that's why <laughs> you go out to dinner and the waiter or waitress doesn't do their job well. <laughs> Clearly they're doing this because I'm black. Yeah. And, and you talk to the table next to you and there's some white folks say like, man, this waiter's terrible. Yeah. You might just have a terrible <laughs> waiter. I mean, <laughs> it happens. Uh, so, all right. Uh, Patiently, Leonidas, sit here. I want to tell you about my friends at Built Bar. Leonidas, I know you're amazed you see me on TV. I'm like, man, Whitlock in person? Looks like Denzel Washington. It's because I've been eating so much better. Built Bar has been a big part of that. Their bars are low in calories, low in sugars. They got flavors galore that I absolutely love. Built Bar is supporting me and this program, me on a personal level as I improve my health and lose weight. On a professional level too, their support of this show is unwavering. That's why I need you to go to Built.com and use the promo code FEARLESS. Thank Built Bar for supporting me, for supporting content and a level of truth and honesty that makes America better and a level of truth and honesty that you appreciate. Why else would you be watching this show? Built Bar is fearless. You need to be fearless in your support of Built Bars. Use the promo code fearless at built.com. You'll get 15% off your first order. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's bring in Tim Barton, the president of Wall Builders, a group that preserves American historical documents and educates the public and government officials about our history. Tim is an ordained minister and works in Christian ed education before joining Wall Builders, which was founded by his father, uh, David Barton. Tim, uh, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I hope you're ready to be fearless in this discussion. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Uh, let's start here. I'm not a fan of the 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to know your thoughts as, as, as wall builders and someone that knows history better than perhaps 99% of the uh, American population. The 1619 Project is, is one of the most divisive, polarizing, and evil mm -hmm. things I've ever seen an alleged journalistic organization do. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the things that, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, alleged journalist organization, 
when, when you claim to be promoting history and yet all you are doing is promoting agenda, there's a lot of problems with that. There's a reason that after the 1619 Project came out, a lot of historians from both conservative and liberal political leanings came out acknowledging there's a lot of just basic historic error in the 1619 Project. And real quickly, it's just worth noting that 1619 is, is when it was identified that there were approximately 19 slaves that were uh, on a British privateer ship that were delivered in Jamestown. There is a little context that makes a difference. Uh, but essentially, there were two British privateer ships operating off the coast, and they intercepted a Portuguese slave trading vessel that had slaves on it. And these two British privateer ships overtook the Portuguese vessel. And then those two British ships split the cargo and the booty between them. And one of the ships took on approximately 19 of the slaves that were on the Portuguese slave trading ship. That slave trading ship was headed for presumably Jamaica, Cuba is kind of what people are speculating. But that British ship said, what are we going to do with these slaves? They said, let's take them to Jamestown and we can unload and offload cargo there. We can sell it, make a profit, and then get back to our privateer ways. When they went to Jamestown, this is where it's very much worth noting, and this is where the history already takes a disturbing, inaccurate turn, is that when they arrived in Jamestown with these approximately 19 slaves, slavery was against the law at that time in Jamestown. It was against the common law, and this is very well documented. What they did have was engendered servitude. The difference between slavery and indentured servitude is indentured servitude, there's actually a set period of years for which you work. And at the end of that time, you are given your freedom. But in Jamestown, not only were they given their freedom, the laws of Jamestown with indentured servitude highlighted and identified that after you were free, you were given your own parcel of land. So all 19 of these individuals that went to Jamestown became indentured servants at the end of whatever their year uh, was given to them, whether it was seven years, some people speculate it might have been 10 or 12 or a little longer, but the reality is at the end of that time, they were given freedom and they were free land owners in America. And actually, some of them have descendants and families still living in America today because they got married and raised families in Jamestown. What's worth noting is had that Portuguese slave ship made it to Cuba or Jamaica, the average lifespan for slaves for the rest of the world in this slave trade era was only a couple of years. So had they gone anywhere else, it would have been far worse than Jamestown. And I'm not defending Jamestown by and large. Jamestown had a lot of problems. Uh, we can go through the sins of Jamestown. It's just what we are doing now is, is we are we are creating new sins that's not entirely what happened. And if you want to talk about America not being a perfect nation, man, I can go down the list with you. I can tell a lot of stories about where America is not perfect. But what we are doing now is we are lying about how imperfect America is, trying to make America look worse than what she actually was, so much so that you even now have a, a U.S. senator last year who explained, based on the history he's learning, he explained that America actually created the institution of of slavery. That was Tim Kaine from Virginia who explained that last year at the U.S. Senate. This is what's crazy is this is what our kids are learning now. And it simply is just incredibly historically inaccurate information because it's promoting an agenda and a narrative, not trying to actually tell the truth of history. Tim, I want to go back at 1619 one more time and just say, this has been my narrative that I've been trying to explain to my audience and just people at large, that the African-American journey, the African-American journey, black people's journey here in America, actually should be celebrated because it highlights the best of America. And I say that because I believe Black people were the steroids for America. And for Amer America made some promises 
1776. Declaration of Independence, all men mm -hmm. are created equal. Constitution, U.S. Bill of Rights, all those things that came out of us winning the Revolutionary War. And the reason the group of people that made America live up to those promises, freedom for, is black people and our relentless pursuit of American freedom made America live up to its best ideals and it's why the country became the envy of the world because we made some promises, black people and white people that were abolitionists made America live up to those promises mm -hmm. all the way through the civil rights movement. And that's why we became the envy of the world and the greatest country in the history of the planet. We should be celebrating our hard fought struggle for American freedom and what it did to this country. It made this country great. Yeah, uh, unquestionably. And Jason, this is where I would point out, this is why history matters. Because if you actually study history, one of the things that becomes very apparent, and I'm saying study history, and not a lot of modern history books tell these stories anymore. We at Wall Builders, we have uh, approximately 160,000 items and artifacts from American history. And the vast majority of them are from the early founding period, more than 100,000, maybe 120,000 uh, documents and artifacts from that era. But here's what's worth noting. And, and everything I'm going to say is super Super easy for people to look up and find. And one of the things we tell people is, hey, don't take my word for it, because we live in an era where far too often we just take the word of someone that posts on social media or somebody sends out a tweet, right, or whatever the news says. We say, no, no, don't take our word for it. Go do this research in history, but here's where the history matters. As you are pointing out, had it not been for the contributions of black Americans and some of these early abolitionists where white and blacks were linking arms together, America never would have became the nation we became. And, and let me just back up to the revolution as a really good starting place. Generally, people think of the American Revolution as beginning with the shot heard around the world, which happened at Lexington Green, April 19, 1775. Uh, shortly later that day, the British went on a Concord Bridge. And then after Concord, they turned and marched back to Boston. And then you have the Battle of Bunker Hill about six weeks later. People generally say that's kind of when the revolution began. That's when America was, was starting the process of separating from Great Britain. It's worth noting, though, that John Adams, after the revolution, he said, you know, I don't think the revolution began with the, the shot heard around the world at Lexington Green. He said, I think the revolution, revolution began actually when the first blood was shed on King Street. Now, the first blood shed on King Street, that was actually the Boston Massacre back in 1770. And here is where it gets interesting in my mind. 1770, the Boston Massacre, there were five people that were shot and killed by the British that day. There's a lot of surrounding context. Three people were killed instantly. Two people died later from the bullet wounds and injuries they sustained. But the very first person believed to have been the very per first person shot and died there at the Boston Massacre was a black man named Crispus Attucks. And, and this is worth noting. Crispus Attucks at that time was a free black man who was joining with other American patriots to oppose tyranny. John Adams says that's when the revolution began was the Boston Massacre. Well, the Boston Massacre started with the death of a black man. If you go through and track the revolution, we know in 1776, the declaration, we separate from Great Britain, and you can track in 77 and 78, you can go all the way to the last major battle of the revolution, which was the Battle of Yorktown. This is where George Washington captured British General Lord Cornwallis. And Cornwallis was the, the individual in charge of all the British forces. Well, what's interesting about this is the reason George Washington knew that Cornwallis was in Yorktown 
He had General Lafayette, Marquis de Lafayette, who worked for him, who was the French major general and really cool guy on a lot of levels. Uh, Lafayette was a, a abolitionist, was anti-slavery his whole life. In fact, uh, when he went back to, to France at the end of the war, he sent money over to abolitionists in America uh, so that he could help fund the abolition efforts to end slavery in America. So there's a lot of cool things about Lafayette. But Lafayette was tasked by Washington with tracking the movement of the British officers during the American Revolution. Well, for Lafayette to do this, he said, I'm going to need some spies that can go in the British camp and gather intel to find out where the British are going, when they're going, how many men they're taking. And Lafayette strategically realized, you know, the people who probably are going to have the easiest opportunities to go in the British camp would be black patriots because a black patriot could pretend like he was an escaped slave and he could go into the British camp seeking refuge. And once he's there, he could just gather intelligence and come back and report to me. So Lafayette made a spy ring largely of black patriots, people who were just fighting for the cause of liberty. And the most significant, the most famous guy that was a spy for Lafayette was a guy named James Armistead. James Armistead served in the camp of Lord Cornwallis, actually served in the tent of Cornwallis. And there's a lot more story to James Armistead. But the short of it is he's the one that found out Cornwallis was going to Yorktown. He got the information to Lafayette. Lafayette got the information to Washington. And you actually can go online and you can find the letter from Lafayette to Washington where Lafayette says, Washington, remember I told you I had this spy in, in Cornwallis' camp who's the best spy I have. He just got me word that Cornwallis is moving with several thousand men to Yorktown. This might be the moment we've been waiting and praying for to actually capture him. Maybe we can end the revolution. Well, that's what Washington did. Washington surrounded Cornwallis at Yorktown. Uh, the, he ends up capturing him. And this is what effectively ended the revolution. But here's what's worth noting. The revolution, according to John Adams, began with the death of a black patriot. And the revolution was effectively won because of the intelligent spy work of a black patriot. So had it not been for the contributions of black Americans, even the revolution would have looked and gone very differently. And we might not have had the success we had had it not been for the contributions of black Americans. We at Wall Builders own many original history books from the 1800s, the early 1900s, written by black historians. One of the guys is William Nell. And William Nell, uh, in, in the 1850s, he wrote many of these books. And he was part of the abolition movement leading up to the Civil War, encouraging people that we've, we've got to see black people in America differently, especially in some of these southern states. And what he pointed out was, had it not been for the work of black patriots in the war of 1776, in the wars of 1812, America might not have even won those wars because the work of black Americans was so significant. Today, we don't recognize hardly any of those contributions. We don't know those names. But to your point, had it not been for the contributions of some of these black Americans where black and whites linked arms together in the cause of liberty, in the cause of equality and freedom and prosperity and all these things we want to throw on there, had it not been for them linking arms together, America never would have succeeded. And this is just not the history and the story that's being told today. Tim, one of the things that frustrates me the most is that these new modern historians, the New York Times, all, all the Ibram X. Kendi, or all these new people, the woke or whatever, they've reduced black history and American history basically to tragedies that mm -hmm. tragedies define African-American history, not accomplishments, not contributions, yeah. not ingenuity, not, not courage, not, it's tragedies. It's whatever bad happened to black people at the hands of white people, that's black history. And we keep seeing, oh my God, how come I wasn't taught about the Tulsa massacre? 
as if like, hold on, man, how come we weren't taught about detailed history Christmas addicts and his role, the role of, of, of black slaves in the intelligence? How come we weren't taught these great accomplishments and contributions but all we want to focus, oh, we got to hear about these tragedies. And I just don't think that's, who tells their history in tragedy other than African-Americans or the people in charge of whatever is supposed to be African-American history? Who, who tells it in tragedy? Yeah, you know, Jason, I know you make the point often is that the, right now the victimhood narrative, the victimhood mantra is the hottest narrative. And so that's what people are trying to sell. And, you know, they're trying to up the rank and the scale of how much of a victim they are. And it's, it's you know, victim politics. And so whoever's the greatest victim seems to have the greatest reward. And I, I know you even just we're talking about this with George Floyd and some of those things going on. What's crazy about this is that today very few people know the story of George Washington Carver. Very few people know the story of Booker D. Washington up from slavery. How many people have never read Up From Slavery, which I think is is one of the if we're going to have a list together, of maybe the 10 most important books uh, that you read as an American, that for sure is on that list of the 10 most important books. And yet most people have never read Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington's autobiography. But what's even crazier now is the the modern reprints of Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery. They actually now have an insert in the front that says this is a work of fiction, where actually several years ago there was a professor at Harvard in 2015 who began to question if if Booker T. Washington had actually even really existed and was he ever a slave and, and what that actually looked like. So this is what's crazy is when you have the narrative of the incredible overcomers, of the incredible achievers against all odds, they've risen up, right? That the Dr. Ben Carsons of the world who grow up in poverty, who have no education, right? Single parent home, mom is illiterate and yet they overcome to become an incredible success in America. We're not explaining the actual true histi history of some of the greatest overcomers in our nation's history. And, and, and Jason, just one of the side note points that frustrates me, I hate the fact that when every February we say, well, this is African-American History Month. And so we, we highlight African-American history heroes. I don't mind highlighting those heroes. My problem is we say this is Black History Month instead of saying, no, no, no this is American Hero Month, right? Like, why can't I look to people like George Washington Carver, Booker T. Washington and go, man, that's an amazing American hero. That's somebody who, who understood and actually fulfilled the American dream. What, what Ben Carson accomplished, that's somebody who took advantage of every opportunity against all odds. And yet what we are doing is, again, we're seeing this level of segregation that instead of saying these are American heroes that should be celebrated regardless of what your skin color, culture, ethnicity is, these are incredible people who are victors. They should be celebrated by everybody, but because they don't meet that mantra of victimhood, we're leaving out some of the most significant contributors in our nation's history. Uh, explain to people Woodrow Wilson's role in critical race theory. This kind of fascinated me. Yeah, so Woodrow Wilson uh, was a professor in, in 1902. He came out with a five-volume set. I actually have that set here, right here beside me. It's the history of... American people. And in this five volume set, Woodrow Wilson goes through and, and essentially chronological starts from the beginning and goes up to their present day. What's worth noting is this five volume set, very successful, uh, increased his notoriety. He actually became the president of Princeton University shortly after. And 
He was actually the first president of Princeton who was not actually a pastor, which is also interesting because Princeton, like most early universities, were founded as Bible colleges and were run by by churches and by pastors. But he's the first president that wasn't a gospel minister. Well, he became so famous as this president at Princeton. And because he had done this five volume set on American history that people said, hey, we need someone as smart as you running for president. And so he ends up getting elected to be president as president. And here's where you kind of start to see the color of who he is. As president, he showed the very first ever film on the White House. It was called The Birth of a Nation. Uh, he, he actually gave it two viewings. And The Birth of a Nation was actually the recruiting film for the KKK. Woodrow Wilson was an incredible racist. Also, if you remember at the end of the Civil War, there actually, during the Civil War, you had units that were not segregated, right? You, we know there was a Mass 54th, a Mass 55th. We know there were black units, but at the end of the Civil War, you begin to have integrated units. Uh, as you go forward with the Spanish-American War, and, and, and as you look in the late 1800s, we had integrated units with black and white serving together. When World War I starts, Woodrow Wilson says, nope, we need to segregate the military again because whites and blacks shouldn't be together. Well, Woodrow Wilson is the guy who helps bring the reintroduction of the KKK, the rebirth of the KKK happens under his leadership, largely under his administration. His own White House marches openly in the streets with the KKK. So this dude is a racist, no good scumbag. And, and there's lots of reasons he was a bad guy, but racism certainly not the least of those. Here's where it becomes significant with his five-volume history set. In his five-volume history set, he removed every single black American from American history. So there's not a mention of a single black person. And if you think about it, he's writing in 1902. So the end of the Civil War, Frederick Douglass, incredibly famous person in American history. In fact, Frederick Douglass was photographed more times than Abraham Lincoln. Everybody knows Frederick Douglass. In fact, at this point, everybody knows George Washington Carver. Everybody knows Booker T. Washington. But Woodrow Wilson says, yeah, we're not including blacks in what we do because he was a racist. Well, he was also one of the leaders of the progressive movement. And as the progressives took over education, they used his history books as the standard for history in public schools. And therefore, they included no black heroes, which is actually part of why decades later, they said, we need to have Black History Month so we can celebrate these contributions. That was the returning to just learning some of those basic stories of American heroes that Woodrow Wilson had expelled. And this is still much of what we are doing in public schools today is following the narrative of Woodrow Wilson, where he said, we're not going to celebrate any of these black heroes because as a racist, he didn't want to talk about black people at all, mention no names. But that is part of the stain. And by the way, it's worth noting that this was a white Democrat president. If you talk about these racist acts in American history, by and large, you see them being committed by white Democrats. This is just kind of the mantra of the Democrat Party for the history of the Democrat Party. But Woodrow Wilson was the guy who largely removed these heroes from our history. Tim, finally, I'm going to let you go on this. How did you, your dad, how did y'all get involved with history at this level and starting wall builders? Uh, walk us through a little bit of your history and your family's history. Yeah, I mean, back in the 1980s, I, I was just a kid, but my dad, uh, he was working at a school. And while he was at the school, students were having to read and memorize some old original documents. And my dad had never read them, but he thought, you know what? He, he was a principal of the school. He decided he was going to read some of this curriculum. And he read these original documents, and they were totally different than what he was told. 
And, and when he started reading original documents, he just realized so much of what he had been told. And, and growing up in the 60s and the 70s, it was totally different than what was actually from the original documents. And so it really inspired him that I want to know what is actually there. I want to know what's actually true. And so his pursuit of the truth of American history led him to start learning the stories, to collecting these original artifacts to where now – we have what's considered the largest private collection of original artifacts just so we can help retell the story of America. And Jason, the point that we try to make with this is we don't argue and defend that America was perfect. We acknowledge America is definitely not a perfect nation, just like we would say you know, every nation's imperfect because every nation has people and all people are messed up. We, we would acknowledge that everybody's jacked up and needs Jesus, right? As a Christian, that's just where I'm coming from. I think everybody is imperfect and needs a savior, but if we know they're imperfect, then my expectation is not to find a perfect America. My expectation is to find an imperfect America. But what is so cool about the American story is we can see how a perfect God used imperfect people and did really special things through them in this nation. This nation is not perfect, but it has been the greatest force for good this world's ever known. And that's the story that we're trying to help reintroduce people to. Tim, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll bring you back. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Uh, Now I get to talk about my very best friends over at Good Ranchers. You'll get the best 100% American grass-fed and grain-finished beef and the tastiest free-range chicken anywhere, and you'll get it at a price their competitors just can't compete with. You can have all that delivered safely to your door in individually sealed and seasoned packages. Guys, I talk about Good Ranchers often. I I just want to stress to you again, if you're a fan of this show, if you like the content that we produce, if you like the discussion Leonidas and I had at the beginning of this show, the discussion I just had with Tim Barton, if you want to have people push back and uh, promote a more honest Christian worldview, you got to support Good Ranchers because they're supporting me and this show. It's important. You ask yourself, what can I do to join the fight? What can I do to push back? Support the people and the businesses that are supporting the view you respect and you think is healthy for America. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash fearless and you'll get $20 off and free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. Support Good Ranchers. It's your way of supporting me and this show and a worldview that supports America. All right, welcome back. Time for a little Wednesday uh, Tennessee Harmony. You know how we like to do it. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker uh, is here with us today. Pastor Bobby Harrington is out. Uh, We flipped Leonidas to the other side of the uh, studio so he could be close and participate in the conversation. Earlier this, oh, before we get started, could you bless our discussion, uh, Pastor Walker, with a short prayer? Father God, again, we come before your throne of grace and mercy. We're thankful for your grace and mercy. Bless us today as we uh, share in this discussion. We pray that all that is said is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, and so earlier this week, you heard us have a discussion on the show about Urban Meyer. 
uh, Irvin was caught in on video uh, seemingly flirting with a young woman and, and we had a discussion about like Urban leans into his faith publicly, mm -hmm. his Christian faith. And that's why this is even more of an issue because if you're gonna wear your faith publicly, uh, don't embarrass yourself publicly doing mm. so, something uh, as inappropriate. And, and he's copped to it and, and admitted to it, but we were, it was me, I think Shamika and either Delano or, or Steve Kim, I, I can't remember what we're discussing. And so we wanted some little biblical expertise. Uh, your thoughts, Pastor Walker, on Urban Meyer being caught in this situation. I don't know if you saw, mm -hmm. he had a very sheepish apology uh, where, where to me it sounded like he made some excuses or whatever, but your thoughts on Urban Meyer, and I know you're a bit of a sports fan, mm -hmm. uh, as I am, obviously. Mm -hmm. But anyway, your thoughts on Urban Meyer? Uh, one of the first things that came to mind was a guy by the name of King David. Uh, as king, kings would usually go to battle in the, at that time and at that culture. They would go to battle with their military in the spring. One particular spring, King David decided not to go. And you can tell by the way the Bible gives the narrative. He was somewhat bored because he went to the roof of his house, like who just walks around on the roof of the palace? But you're usually out to battle. And so because he's on the roof of his house, he's walking around, he looks over and he sees Bathsheba bathing. The point being, when you're not where you're supposed to be, you'll see things you're not supposed to see. And so Urban says in his apology, he, he, he said multiple times, I should have left. You know, I was only there to take a couple of pictures and then I should have left. He knows that he wasn't doing and wasn't where he was supposed to be. And because of that, he got into some activity that he should not have participated in. But that also gives some indication of some things that might be going on within him. So yeah, all those things came to me uh, to mind initially when I saw it. You know, one of the things I thought, uh, Pastor Walker, and I, I think as a minister, I think you guys deal with it in terms of, of when you have the stature, the profile of an Urban Meyer, there's probably gonna be more temptation put in front of you, more opportunities for you not to be where you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I think ministers, deal with that issue as well in terms of when you're the leader of the church and you're out front talking or whatever, women are going to be attracted and, and mm -hmm. put you in tough situations. And, and so Urban Meyer might be sitting around and who knows, maybe it's true. Mm -hmm. Like, well, sh she brought it to me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing anything. I, I was just there. And, and look, there may be kernels of truth in that, but mm -hmm. as a leader, you got to be better than that and you have to be more self-aware to know like I'm the head coach of an NFL franchise. I make eight, nine, ten million dollars a year. Everybody knows who I am. Yeah, I'm going to be tempted. Mm -hmm. How am I going to handle it? Well, scripture says it this way. We're not tempted uh, except that which is common to man. So that simply means that everybody faces common temptations. You're tempted by things that are common. I am too. I'm not a super Christian. You're not a super Christian. We're all tempted by the same. It may seem more intense because of the position. And you got to think of it from the angle of the enemy. 
he's trying to cut the head off the snake. He's trying to attack. So in that way, sometimes it does seem like ministers are targeted in a way, because if I can make him fall, I can affect the faith of God and others because of those people that look to him. But that same temptation that I'm approached with or that you might be approached with or anybody else, it's the same as everybody has those struggles with those temptations. But we got to be on guard. We got to guard ourselves with the word. And, and, you know, you mentioned it about his faith. The thing about it, about faith is God wants us to be exclusive with him. If you look at how people have strayed away from God, how God's people have strayed away from him uh, throughout scripture, every time God relates it to like a marriage. He says, you went with somebody else. You went with another God. Uh, And scripture even describes God. He says, I'm a jealous God. I don't want you talking to somebody else. I don't want you flirting with somebody else. And you claim that I'm your God. So in that way, you talk about him, Urban, having to make choices. We have to make choices, not just when we say I do. We have to make choices every day. Every single day we have to make those same choices. Yeah, uh, it's about knowing yourself. You know what I mean? You know what is going to tempt you. You know what you're drawn to. And you have to be you have to have the forewithal to avoid those kind of situations. I do this I do this with my kids. You know, we know what they struggle with. They know what they struggle with. My oldest struggles with video games. Like he can't he can't put it down and we have issues with it. So it's like look, you know what your problem is. You have to be aware of it, you know? When, or you can't let it own you. You can't let yourself be be sucked into that situation. So yeah, Urban knows what his temptations are. And I don't know what his temptations are. Urban knows he knows what his temptations are. I know what my temptations are. Mm-hmm. Pastor knows what his temptations are. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to avoid those situations, not put ourselves in that situation where we're, where we're even tempted in the first place. One thing I can remember Shamika saying, and I disagree with her, but <laughs> I'll let you have the final say, uh, Pastor Walker. Well, he didn't cheat. That wasn't cheating. Nothing happened. Oh, wow. I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that part. <laughs> Nothing happened. So... so Translating very quickly from Old Testament to New Testament, the Old Testament, uh, when God gives the Ten Commandments, the way God's people took it was just by the letter of the law. Okay, as long as I don't do this, as long as I don't do that. So in an Old Testament mindset, sure, he didn't have intercourse. So I guess everything's okay. Even the phrase in in the Bible where it talks about uh, Paul being struck 39 or 40 stripes minus one. You know, they thought that. 40 stripes would kill you. So we'll do 39 New Testament. Jesus says, I have written the law on your heart. So he says in Matthew chapter five, you've heard that it has been said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. So that means that, yes, you can be unfaithful without intercourse. And and that's where, again, how God talks about how we even look at our relationship with him. We can be unfaithful to him with not physically engaging. So I would beg to differ as far as the cheating. I would say that he was unfaithful because of what he did. Would he have done that with his wife there? No. Okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. You know, the other thing I I thought about, because we've had this discussion here in the last couple of weeks, 
about idolatry. Mm-hmm. And I think that people, and particularly successful, and I can only talk to the male side of it because I don't know what it's like to be a successful woman, but I've seen success make me feel like my own idol mm-hmm. and that I'm entitled to certain things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do all this, I, mm-hmm. I take care of this person, I make X amount of dollars, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm supposed to have this. Mm-hmm. and. I, I can even remember, and the column was a humor column. It was humorous, but all humor is based in what you believe to be a truthful worldview. Mm-hmm. Years ago, Pastor Walker, I can remember I wrote a column that was funny. It was a humor column, but it basically was a column that argued if a man made X amount of dollars, this is how many nights out of the year he gets to go out and do whatever he wants. And it's, it, and when I look back at the column, it's a very idolatrous column. Mm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I've made myself and mm-hmm. my status. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm entitled to the, and that, when I look at Urban Meyer and the way he conducted himself, I was like, he's his own idol. You know, the, the higher that you're elevated, you mentioned it, the more you tend to struggle with your perception on power, prestige and position. So the more power you gain, your perception of what that power enables you to do, okay, that comes with that. The more prestige you're given, the more that those that look to you because of that, the more you'll struggle with that. Even position, you know, he's got several positions that he's over and that if he says this or he says that, it comes with that. And so what happens, and I think what what Leonidas is saying, even with as we know ourselves, There's a part of us that we want to justify our behavior. Mm -hmm. So now because I'm in this position, I feel that it's, you know, like you said, I either deserve or I would be able to do this this, and it's not a big deal. All of that deals with it. And from that idle perspective that, yeah, I'm I'm this. And even God would look to that to say, obviously, we're not exclusive. Either you're going to choose me or you're gonna choose you. Now, if I choose God, then that means that my conversation needs to reflect that. My behavior needs to reflect I'm choosing God. And again, I'm not judging Urban. His behavior has, has put itself out there. I don't know him personally. I don't know his you know, personal struggle, but obviously the fact that he comes to apologize, whether he's forced to or not, the fact that he comes to apologize, he knows This is not just an indicator of my relationship with my wife. This is an indicator with my relationship with my God. You keep going back to that and you Mm -hmm. made the reference about uh, a commitment to a spouse is similar to your commitment to God. Mm -hmm. Elaborate on that. I'm going to give you give you a passage of scripture. Um, Joshua 24. We we're familiar with this around verse 14 and 15. Uh, but, but let's listen to God. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. We're familiar with that passage. But the people respond to Joshua 
And they say, oh, oh, we're we're going to serve the Lord. Listen to his response. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. So Joshua is saying God's been there for you. He's delivered you. We're in the promised land, but you still desire other gods. So the fact that you say verbally, oh, we want to serve God. He said, you can't serve God. You've shown that you're not holy. You've shown that you're not committed verbally. You're committed. But your behavior shows otherwise. But when Joshua challenges them in their commitment, verse 23, he says, now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So God is saying in that whole passage, you got to make a choice. And if you think about the guys out there who were players, you know, it's, it's hard for them to commit because we got the field Now you got homegirl over here and she's kind of say, hey, you say that I'm yours, you know, but you're still playing the field. So he's OK. All right. All right. So now he gives her an engagement ring. He proposes this engagement. But the engagement may last five years. Why? Because I'm still not ready to say no other. And that's what God is saying with us. Are we ready to say? And oftentimes, you know, as it relates to God and our relationships, we treat God like a side chick. You know, when we want our needs met, we go to God. But we walk publicly with our idols. We let everybody else know. God says, if I'm your God, then, hey, you're going to everybody's going to know you're going to show me off to everybody. You're going to tell everybody about me just as we would our spouse. If somebody gets a little close to me. I start talking about my wife because I already know the energy. I already know it, it could be about anything. I say, yeah, you know, my wife and I were we had lunch over there. Ah, oh, that lets you know, hey, I've got a commitment. When uh, temptation eases up on us, we got to say, hey, you know what? God wouldn't be pleased about that. You know, me and God, we're in such a good relationship. I don't even need to go there. You know, hey, I, I got to go, you know, hey, because. I'm in this relationship and commitment with God. So to God, it's linked up and how we we do. We get it in how we treat our spouse, but we treat God the same way. People have heard me say this and I, I, I just repeat it because you never know who's watching this mm-hmm. particular time. Mm-hmm. So I, I keep repeating some of the same things, but it literally I went on a little guy's trip. Uh, two weeks ago, and and I can remember <laughs> it, it, wearing my faith publicly worked for me quite well. Everybody got ready to go someplace, and I was like, "Hey guys, you know I'm a Christian. I'm going to bed." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody could argue with that. They could, oh, Whitlock, you a wimp, you a blah blah blah. It's like once I played the God card, it's like you really gonna argue against God? And <laughs> everybody was <laughs> everybody. If I just said, "Nah, I can't go." Mm-hmm. People uh, may have called me the P word, may have, you know, mm-hmm. challenged me all the different kinds of, but because I was like, you know, I really can't because I, I would look, I'm a Christian. I'd look crazy in there. Mm-hmm. They got nothing to say. And then not, no one was mad at me. Everybody, we had a great trip, sure. blah, blah, blah. But that's one of the benefits of, of wearing your faith publicly. And, and it's why you should show off God. 
it wards off. You know, uh, last Wednesday I was, or yeah, it was last Wednesday, a week ago. Uh, I went to a friend's house or his brother-in-law's house. They had like 50, 60 people at this guy's house. And uh, they had a, it was a dinner. They had a little gospel group come in there and sing. They had a minister talk. And, and the minister talked about spiritual warfare. Mm. And, and it was a reminder. He told some story about, basically his whole message was that God's words are actually our most powerful tool. Yes. And use them. Yes. <laughs> use those words. Yes. And it reminded me, he told a story about that like, look, a lot of things that we're attributing to mental illness or uh, gender dysphoria or whatever, he, he goes, not all of it, but a lot of it is really demonic. There, You got demons. Absolutely. And the way to ward them off is through God's word. And yes. they started talking about planting stakes with God's words around your property, around your house, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I can't remember, he just said, just calling out Jesus' name and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You'd be amazed at the power that, and it reminded me of something that I've done for, I'm 54. I've been doing it for about 48 years. My grandmother, Lovey Kennedy, <clears throat> It's hard for me, but she told me as a kid, mm -hmm. I used to have bad nightmares and couldn't go to sleep. And she's like, oh, Jason, all you need to do is say, uh, devil, get away from me in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The dreams will stop. <laughs> I've done that because I'd have really deep dreams. Sure. And for 48 years, every time I say that, the dreams stop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, just a reminder, like, God's word and just calling out that name has incredible power that we don't often tap into. You, you hidden something, man. Did you? Have I'm not saying it's a sword. It's the sword of truth. Did we go into battle with, uh, you know, the, the full armor of God and, and the word is a sword. And absolutely. Use it that way. And you battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities. And that's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, you can go ahead, Pastor. For, for, for your viewers, for you, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 4. Um, it, is a, it is the rumble in the jungle. It is mano y mano. It is Jesus versus Satan. Literally, on the same, in the same arena. Satan comes with temptations. Every time Jesus responds to him, his temptation, he says, it is written. It is written. All he did was quote the word. Now, we, we know that Jesus is the, the lion. We know that Jesus has all power. We know that he is stronger than it and, and he has miraculous power. But when fighting the devil head to head, he just quoted scripture. So when we think about our deepest temptation, our strongest demons that face us, our biggest challenges, Jesus fought that with the word of God. Literally, Matthew chapter four, verses one through 10. It'll bless it's, your it's, life. It's one as a kid, you go to church and you you do what you're told to do. Stand up, sing this song, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm not sure if you. It, it took me getting into adulthood 
to really understand the purpose of gospel music and just like what it does to your mind and spirit mm -hmm. and can can get your mind right so you can make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until adulthood that I fully figured that out. And like, it's like when I go to church now, the music is very important to me in terms of getting my mind right, getting ready for the sermon, mm -hmm. making sure I can re receive it properly or whatever. It, it's, it's, it's amazing what you learn in adulthood. And I read a book recently, someone gave me a book and it wasn't a, a spiritual book, it, it, but it was just a book. But they explained like the purpose of prayer before eating in terms of preparing your mind and body for the food actually to nourish your body. You should that there are things we're not tapping into. And so food doesn't do what it's supposed to do <laughs> because we haven't prepared our mind for it to do what it's supposed to do yeah. and prayer before eating is supposed to be that preparation. And I just, I wish we all understood spirituality and Christianity and a relationship with God on that level. It's not just some little ritual. No. All this stuff actually has a purpose that makes an impact on your mind, body, spirit, your whole, the whole nine. The experiences that we have in life are real. Uh, the challenges that we face are real. But the counter to that is just as real. God's word is real. Prayer is a real connection between you and God. The Holy Spirit is real. God's uh, leadership in your life is real. So when we, as you point out, when we submit to that and we walk in that, we can literally see what the hand of God is doing in our life as it guards our mind, as it guards our body, as it guards our life. I'm just listening to, as you said, and I hope that you see what was revealed in that. When you, in a tough situation for you personally, walk into it and express, you know what, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, guys. I, I'm, this, is, this is my walk. It puts them in check. It protects you. It reminds you, and that's just, hey, I just expressed that. But if we take that same expression and, and the same walk everywhere, it does the same thing. I'm going, you've given me a perfect ending for this segment, and I, I, we were gonna talk about Eros versus Agape Love, but mm -hmm. I, I wanna make, I wanna follow up on your point okay. and just kinda end the show in terms of, people have asked me because you know, like, uh, you wearing your faith publicly, why are you doing it? You know, uh, that's not what you did previously in your media career. And I, first thing I always tell them, I was like, nah, I think you missed it. Because if, if you read my writings going back 30 years, it's in there. I used to write columns about my grandmother and the role she played in my life and the role my church, 25th Street Baptist Church, played in my life. But it was so smothered in all the secular things and blah, blah, blah. And, and I didn't wear it as publicly uh, as I obviously do now. But the main reason I'm wearing it so publicly now is like, once you figure out like, man, they are really out to get me and I know where this spirit is coming from, and my only defense is God. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that can protect me at this point. I'm a target. The people, there's a secular, a secular group of people that don't like what I represent, 
whether it be the masculinity, whether it be the patriarchy, certainly the, anybody that really understands me knew years ago, like they didn't miss those things everybody else missed. Like, man, this dude's a Christian and <laughs> he's got a popular voice and we don't want that in the media space. The only thing that provides me protection at this point, and it's why, you know, people are, are people, there's a lot of people in the media afraid of me. And they're really not afraid of me, they're afraid of God. And they're afraid like, that. man, this dude is leaning into God. <laughs> mm -hmm. We better be careful. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to try to inspire people. That's why we have these conversations on Wednesday and it's why my conversation is led with this. Those of you out there dealing with challenges, those of you that are trying to do the right thing and are struggling and maybe there are people around you that aren't helping you, I'm just telling you, if you start wearing your faith on your sleeve, even though you're flawed, you're a sinner, we all are. Don't, we sit around and wait to get perfect and then mm -hmm. we're gonna wear our Christianity. Mm -hmm. No, 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 wear it now and it will move you towards perfection. It will move you down that path. Yeah. But if you refuse to wear it, it can't help you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's my message for today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Great job, Pastor Walker. Leonidas was great. Leonidas will be back with us tomorrow. Awesome. Uh, and we will see you tomorrow. Let's hear some tomorrow.